My name is Pedro Mujabafid, and we at TMC aim to discuss and inform students regarding topics which aren't covered well in medical school. This interview series is aimed at answering the questions that medical students, interns and doctors-to-be have regarding the various career pathways for medical graduates. Now the views and opinions expressed here are purely personal and are not reflective or representative of the stance of any employer, college, medical service, endorsement or other person. Alright, let's start the show. Okay, and so just to confirm, am I pronouncing your name right? Tom Shashin? Shashin. Shashian. Yeah. What's what's your background? I'm a mixture. A I'm mixture. A Armenian, Greek and Italian, born in Australia. Oh wow, yeah. nice one. Excellent. Okay, and um, you work at a couple of GP clinics mm-hmm. in southeast Melbourne, is that right? So I work at Berwick Healthcare and I work here at Parkman. Yeah. Perfect. Okay, are you happy to begin? Yeah, very happy. Awesome. So just try to keep as clear a voice as you can, trying to mumble. Yep. Okay, no Perfect. problems. It's a bit difficult with my voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a nice deep voice. Yes, yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey everyone, today we're here with general practitioner Dr. Tom Shashin. Tom works at various GP clinics in southeast Melbourne. Hi Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Can you start by telling us your journey from when you finished medical school to where you are now? Okay, so I um, I completed medical school interstate. I was an Adelaide uh, boy. I met a Melbourne girl and uh, got married and came to Melbourne to do my internship. Um, Started out at Frankston. Um, Then from Frankston went to uh, Sandringham and I, I was about six weeks into Sandringham when I got approached by um, one of the registrars, senior registrars there, obstetrics. He said, you know, we could really use you. We, we're looking for obstetric registrars. Um, and I thought, well, it's an area that I'm interested in. Uh, had some very interesting work. It's got a nice mix of medicine and, and uh, procedural work. Remuneration, obviously, is, is very good. So I threw myself into it and I went, uh, I got accepted at Monash. I trained there uh, for well on almost eight years. Um, got to the end of my training, uh, sat the exam one, uh, the first part exam, um, wasn't successful. I had some things going on in my life at that time and um, sort of sat back and reevaluated what I wanted to do uh, after that. I was, I got, so far through the training that they had actually started to employ me as a staff obstetrician, so unaccredited consultant. So I worked as a consultant at uh, Casey Hospital for two years. And during that time, thought about really what I want to do. Do I want to go back, sit exams? Do I really want to be an obstetrician? Um, sat down with my wife, looked at the way my job at the time and my responsibilities was affecting my very young family. I had a wife and two very small children and um, didn't really think that it was compatible with the life that I had always envisaged for myself from a family point of view. I wanted to spend lots of time with my kids. I wanted to spend lots of time with my spouse, who's not a doctor. Um, And my wife was feeling very much, and she often said, you know, feeling like a single mum. We used to take two cars to a lot of functions because I'd be on call and uh, I'd have to leave sometimes or I'd leave my family at a, at a birthday party or at, a, at, a, at another function because I would be called away for a delivery or I'd be called away to the hospital to review a patient in ED, etc. Um, or I would be agreeing to do some private work with uh, other obstetrician consultants and going to private uh, Caesars and backing people up or covering people. So got to a point that it was very demanding and I thought this is not what I want to do this is um this is definitely not what I want to do and I am then um, spoke with a couple of colleagues of mine who had shifted from surgical training uh, not obstetrics uh, into general practice Um, thought about a balance of two things or balance of a few things really one I wanted to make enough money to pay my bills put two kids through private school um, you know, pay for the for the mortgage, etc. Um, I didn't need to drive a Porsche. I didn't need to drive, a, you know, a Mercedes, etc. Um, and I also wanted um, 
good quality, good quality life with my, my wife and kids. And I wanted something interesting, um, something where I could still do some procedural work um, and some more continuity of care because that's the one thing I did notice about obstetrics was it's, um, I guess surgeons have the same thing. People come and they go out of your practice. You don't mm-hmm. see them for years on end, very few. Yeah. Unless you're a specific discipline like uh, urogyne or uh, pelvic pain uh, where you might see your patients for many, many years. Most the patient comes referred by a GP, you see them, you fix their problem, they move on. Or they come, they're pregnant, you deliver, they move on. And yep. You might see them at the next pregnancy, but that's it for continuity of care. So um, I approached some friends of mine in emergency who were getting out of emergency uh, training, actually, to go into um, general practice. And I also talked to a um, the head of emergency at the time, uh, or presently so, up at uh, Casey Hospital, Prof. Alistair Meyer, who um, was telling me all about um, his journey. And um, he had some life changes as well. And um, he's still uh, up to his eyeballs in emergency work. And he's, as I said, head of department. Yeah. But he also went off and did GP training. Mm. Almost like a fallback as to what he might want to do yeah. later on. So I approached the college. I, I set the little entrance exam that they do. I got in. Um, and I've gone through the training program. So I'm at, right at the end of the GP training program now. So um, I practice at two practices. I don't do any after-hour work. I'm not on call anywhere. I only do after-hours work that I put my hand up for. I have a nice mix of procedural work and, um, and just general practice consulting. Um, I do private assisting, private surgical assisting and private uh, obstetrics and gynecology um, surgical assisting at least one list a week. I, so I take a morning off or an afternoon off to go and do something surgical with some colleagues. Um, I have been approached to do some GP obstetrics work, which is quite procedural, but that kind of defeats the purpose. And I've said no thus far because I, I don't want to go back into yeah, what, yeah. what was um, drawing me away from my priorities. My kids love that I'm home every night. We have family dinners. Um, I go to all their functions and we take one car. Uh, <laughs> my wife hasn't mentioned that she or, or joked or made any comments about being a single mum in the last two years. Um, it's a whole different world. It's a whole yeah. different life. Um, I do miss some aspects of the obstetrics and, and gynae surgery and procedural work. Um, I don't miss the lifestyle at all. Um, I think one thing that uh, somebody said to me once was just because you're good at something doesn't mean it's necessarily good for you. Yeah. And you know, I, I considered myself fairly good at what I was doing. I remember speaking with Prof. Ewan Wallace uh, when I when I left at uh, Casey Hospital. I said, you know, I'm leaving. You know, I want to leave under good circumstances. I wanted you to rate my performance, etc. And he said um, some very very nice things and didn't have any issue. And actually, was quite um, encouraging me not to leave obstetrics. So um, I think I was good at it. I, I just don't think the life was compatible with my life goals yeah mm-hmm. and now I'm choosing areas in general practice that are stimulating I do travel medicine I do some dermatology um, looking at doing a dive medicine course uh, which because scuba diving is one of my interests which I've finally been able to get back to after 12 years of not doing it at all yeah because uh, I have time um, and um, I do a lot of shared care and tenatal work I, st- I have my, I converted my um, Ranscog training to an advanced uh, Dipobs, uh, or Dipobs in guiding now it is, so a Dranscog. Um, and I also did a Department of Child Health while I was sort of doing my GP training uh, years. So I have a very well-rounded practice and I see everything from uh, the elderly to the disabled to you know, male and female patients now and children, lots of children. And I still see a lot, a heavy amount of obstetrics and that's primarily because of my, my Dranscog, my advanced Dranscog. So 
sort of a really wonderful mix. But at the same time, my work-life balance is where it's right for me. Yeah. And that's the key, I guess. Mm. It's, it's what's right for, for me. I think that was the best response to an open-ended question I've ever had. <laughs> so, <laughs> thanks for that. I've, I've been asked that question. Many times? Oh. Countless times. Yeah. I, I've lost track. Yeah. I, I've even had some anesthetics colleagues come call me crazy saying, why are you walking away from obstetrics? You know, you're at the end of your training. What are you doing? Yeah. You're nuts. You know? Yeah. Um, why invest eight, ten years of your life and then walk off to be, as they put it, just a GP? And I think that's because a lot of people don't understand what a GP does. Mm-hmm. There's some shocking assumptions by specialists that GPs are living on $70,000, $80,000 a year. We're just ridiculous um, assumptions from a remuneration point of view and ridiculous assumptions of, of what they actually do. Yeah. It's what you want to make of it. So, mm. yeah. I've copped, all, I've copped that question so many times. <laughs> Okay. Well, uh, you started off by saying that you were approached to kind of get into uh, obstetrics. That's, That's something right. that a lot of people would wish for. Yeah. At what point uh, in, your, in what PGY year were you? How much obstetrics experience had you had when you were approached to do something uh, like that? Interestingly, I'd had virtually none as a medical student. Yeah. Um, I had interests in it, but um, I, uh, the university I went to, um, as medical students, our particular years we were going through, just didn't get access to the labor ward, didn't get access to a lot of obstetrics. And then I ended up at a service, it was Sandringham Hospital. At the time, back in 2003, was going through some major changes and um, they were stretched. They were supposed to have two registrars and two residents and they ended up with one registrar leaving and they were, they were completely devoid of residents. So they were, they were really... In a, in a bad way, mm-hmm. uh, needing staff. And the head of obstetrics there, Peter Luchin at the time, Prof Peter Luchin, his IVF guru, um, just approached me and said, look, we really, we need somebody. Would you like to be the unaccredited sort of Dranscog um, resident slash registrar, unaccredited for the year? You know, don't just do a, a three or four month term, I'd like you here for the entire year. Um, and I did. So at that point, you really didn't have... Like, you didn't know what you were like as an obstetrics... I had no idea. I thought, I'll give this a go. This, mm. It's something that I've always been interested in. My family's had some family history of fertility issues. My mum was um, infertile back in the 60s, told she'd never have kids. Then she went on the human gonadotrophin trials back in the uh, 60s. Oh, right. Where they were using human gonadotrophin from cadavers. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, you know, she had multiple miscarriages, 10 years of treatment, and I ended up being... <laughs> the product. The product of that. Yeah. Um, so I heard about obstetrics and obstetricians and endocrinologists all my life. My dad would go on and on and on, and you wouldn't exist if it wasn't for yeah, yeah. Professor This and Dr. That. And I, um, so I always had an interest, and I thought oh, it might be nice to go back into that area. Yeah. But I didn't know how I was going to be. And then I did it. And I, you know, we just we were just married at the time. I didn't have any kids. And I loved it. And yeah. I sat down with my wife at the end of that year. And I said, look, they're offering me um, training. I've applied. And they've, they've accepted. I'm going to start at Monash next year. Um, it's going to mean X, Y, and Z. And I sat there. I said, it's going to mean I'm going to be on call a lot. I'm going to... How was that conversation? Um... Look, all new wives, I guess new husbands, and don't want to be sexist here, so uh, new a, a, a woman approaching a, a, her non-medical husband and saying, I want to do this sort of training. Your partners would, um, early on in the marriage, they want to support you with, they want you to be happy. They want you to chase your dreams. Yeah. The reality of living with that dream is a different circumstance from a single person, sorry, a, um, a parent and wife versus just a wife yeah as a wife she was a busy business lady as well she would be uh, she was an area manager for Goldmark Jewelers she used to run 18 stores across the state and also into Victoria uh, sorry into New South Wales and, and Adelaide so she had a lot of responsibilities so she at that point I guess she didn't mind yeah but um, after the second child she was staying home and I was getting further and further into my training with more and more responsibility and I am um, it just changed. So the initial conversation was quite positive. I want you to be happy if this is everything for you. 
it was like that yeah but then after several years and you got to remember most of this the training you're going to go through for specialty training is not a two-year training it's yeah you know, it's four years six years eight years depending on what subspecialty training you also do you could easily go out to eight years or more so the person you are when you go in in your late 20s yeah could well be a very different person to the person with different priorities yeah as you're exiting in your mid to late 30s yeah or even later even or even later so your your family responsibilities what you the pressures on you what you want they could all change Mm. Um, you know in your 20s all all i wanted to do was save lives and do amazing things and get the instant gratification yeah baby's in trouble go to the Caesar, get the baby out. Mum's good, Happy baby's days. good, fantastic, go home, save the life. Who gets, you get to do that every day. I mean, that's that's a fantastic sort of feeling. Yeah. Um, so from that perspective, great, but the lifestyle. Yeah. So when you were approached, were you, had you just been like a fantastic intern slash junior resident? And I, they just I, thought was you... a, I apparently was a good, uh, a really good resident. Right. Um, uh, they liked the way I was running things. I was changing things on the ward, streamlining things, making things work better. Um, I was very flexible um, at that time. You know, I sold my soul to the, the public hospital system. So if they wanted overtime, I did overtime. If they wanted me to work a weekend and they were short, I, I did. Hard worker. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if uh, if uh, there was an unwell patient, and my shift finished at seven, I'm still there at 11 p.m., you know, taking care of the situation. That gets noticed really quickly. Yeah. Um, everywhere, whether you're a medical student or whether you're an intern or a resident. Yeah. And my notes were always impeccable at the time. <laughs> They're not the best these days, but I type them, <laughs> thank God. Um, and just the way I would hand patients over, the way I would work patients up, uh, the way I would document everything. Got the dream. Yeah. You're the dream. Well, yeah. They, they looked at it and thought, oh, we'd like you working for us. So, yeah. And they were really, as I said, it was it was also the right place at the right time. Yes. They were in a bit of a yeah. pickle. They really needed uh, an extra um, set of hands and um, they wanted to give me an opportunity. Please make sure to complete the survey for this episode. We want to make sure the episodes are as useful as possible and the surveys help us to monitor whether they're making an impact on our fellow peers. It only takes 30 seconds and it helps more than you can imagine. The link can be found on our Facebook and our blog. So you started to make this decision about moving away from obstetrics Mm. after um, the first exam. How Mm. long did that decision actually end up taking before you were like, right, I've switched out, I've gone into this? Because that's a big decision to it make. It is. And look, a lot of personal things are happening in my life, in my marriage, uh, in my personal life, as well as at the hospital. Yeah. Very little was actually ha- happening at the hospital. I was just working and enjoying my work and, yeah. and working long hours. And um, I, I think working really well. People were very happy with my, my work. And you know, Dr. Mark Tarrant and, um, as I said, Ewan Wallace and others were always very positive the way they were feeding back to me but um so my workplace was just going along quite well but my personal life was just blowing out um my marriage was under a lot of stress uh my relationship with my kids was getting um was being affected my my kids were really noticing that i was leaving the house sometimes two or three times at night there would be noises going on in the Mm. hallways as i'm getting dressed and going out and phone calls at 2 a.m and 3 a.m I'd go, I'd go to delivery, I'd come back, I'd go again two hours later. Um, it's very disruptive mm. for young children. You know, I, I used to, you know, my, my, do- my oldest daughter used to ask me, are you going out again tonight, Daddy? Are you going to stay home tonight, Daddy? Uh, are you going to be home all night, Daddy? You know, it really hurts. It's very you, distressing. When, yeah, when your four-year-old's asking you, are you going to stay home tonight so I know that you're here, that you're, yeah. you're around? When I wake up tomorrow morning, are you going to be here? Yeah. Um, kids, I guess, as they grow up, they people think they forget, but they don't. Mm. And they can either accept that, and I've, I know some people who uh, are the sons and daughters of obstetricians, and they just accept it. That's what dad did. Dad was just always away. Yeah. Uh, I didn't want my daughter to have to accept that about mm. me. Um, 
and I also wanted the freedom to participate in things with it. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, the process took, I don't know, in my private life as things were going through, um, maybe somewhere between six to 18 months. It wasn't a quick decision. Yeah. I didn't, I always knew that that was going to be a problem. Yeah. It had been building up over the years. It just took me a good six to 18 months to jump. Mm. Because it was a really hard thing to walk away from 10 years of, of your life. Yeah. That you've invested. And sometimes, and I guess that, why, that you might see some very miserable people, not just doctors, but other people who have invested so much time becoming something. And when they became that thing, they worked out they really didn't like it. Yeah. Or life or whatever it is about it. Something's annoying them. About There's no it. pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. There's no pot of gold or the, just something about that life or lifestyle or that career really grates against them and they feel stuck yeah they never walk away from it because they just keep on saying to themselves i studied five years to be a lawyer and then i I went and did such and such at such a law firm for six years and seven years you know i'm a patent attorney now and god i'm I'm not walking away from all of that yeah Mm -hmm. sat all these exams you just sometimes people trap themselves yes in paths so it did take me quite some time to get out out of that and, and to actually make the jump when you did eventually come out and now that you're obviously quite happy with your life yeah. do you feel like it was it's wasted time or do you feel like it's well it, used i use it every day so my obstetric skills um my surgical skills the way i approach a pregnant woman the way i approach a postpartum woman uh, the way i approach babies it's very different. Yeah. Uh, so I don't feel like it's wasted. I, I'm sure that I would have colleagues who would consider that it's a waste. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I'm not on a labor ward. Yeah. Uh, I'm not doing forceps anymore. I'm not doing vacuums. I'm not doing seizures. I'm not doing any of that. So that I'm sure people would perceive it as a waste. Um, but all of that comes at a cost. Of and the cost is you have to be available to work in those environments, to work yeah. a certain way. There's very few people. I'm sure they're, they're, you could probably count on one hand, but there's very few people who say, oh, you know, I do a couple of deliveries a month. I work two days a week. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's very difficult, yeah. It's very hard to do that as yeah. a specialist. You talk to any specialist, particularly those people who are, you know, the men or the women who are the primary earners for their families, they... Um, they have to work full, full time because every referral that comes to you, you say yes to yep. so that the GPs continue to refer to you. And yep. now that I'm a GP, I, I understand it. Yeah. If I refer You've seen to, both sides. Yeah, because I refer to, to specialists. If I'm always getting no, he's full or she's full or not taking any more patients, I just stop referring forever. Yeah. And j- lots of GPs do that. They just stop referring. And the specialists know that. So what do they do to combat that? They say yes to everything. Yeah which means they blow out their um, their workload. So the very few of them have a, have a boutique um, private practice yep. part-time and no overtime. And that just that, that doesn't exist. You know, that might exist in, in, you know, in some TV show somewhere, but it's not in real life. You also mentioned that when you were discussing with other people who, whether to get out or what to do, you were talking to some emergency um, people who were coming out. Why were they coming out of emergency? Um, Shift work. Shift work. Uh, They love what they do. Yeah. They've got really good access to procedural stuff. They see acutely unwell people. They really, they make a difference. If you like adrenaline, it's a fantastic place to work. If you like making a difference, every shift you'll go home and you'll, you know, almost every shift, you'll feel like you've made a difference. It's great work. I worked in emergency for uh, about eight months or six months continuously before I um, during that transition from obstetrics to GP. Oh, right, yeah. And um, I, I've met a few of them who were getting, they were pushing late 50s. Yeah. And after 20 years of shift work, they probably wanted to continue doing some... Um, emergency work but wanted a better lifestyle wanted yeah. to turn up to a clinic at 8am or 9am 
and leave the clinic at 5 p.m., not have any after hours, mm-hmm. have a lunch break, mm-hmm. which is yeah. just... You know, coming of. from a hospital, it's unheard of. Um, just that they wanted the life. Yeah. And they worked out that, you know, yes, your average GP is not making uh, the same amount of money as a consultant emergency specialist. So their hourly rate is usually significant, 120 or $150 an hour, particularly if it's after hours, etc. Many of them are on, on that sort of money. And we're generally on about 100 and, somewhere between 100 and 120 if you're if you're a busy uh, effective experienced GP so yeah it's not a massive hit yeah it does add up to a bit over over the 12 months when you work mm. at annual incomes a bit um, but you're still earning more than enough to live a very comfortable lifestyle I mean I know and at that point I guess you're trading money for time well yeah yeah. I mean, money doesn't fall out of the sky and land in an obstetrician's lap. Yeah. They are waking up at three in the morning on, on Saturday morning and running off and doing a faucet while I'm in bed. Yeah. Comfy. Yeah. So, yeah, if you want the extra 100000 a year, 100 k a year, you know, the, the difference is often something like that, maybe to 100, 100 to 150 k a year more, great. But Go for if, that. Um, yeah. if, if you don't need that, um, no need to put yourself through it. Mm -hmm. I do it. And just the lifestyle benefits. Would you, if you had your time again, would you go straight into GP now? Probably. Probably. Probably, yeah. Yeah. I I look back at those years and think, well, maybe I could have done just the DevOps, spent 12 months doing things, maybe even two years doing some unaccredited OBGYN work and then then go off into general practice. And I would be now... Well, 12 years into it. Yeah. Instead of, you know, two and a half, three years into it. Yeah. So it's... Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. I, I look at that and think, yeah, maybe, but you don't you don't know that at the time. Nobody yeah. pulls no you aside and says, yeah. hey. No one's got a crystal ball. No. In, uh, out of interest, when you were a medical student, mm-hmm. what did you, what kind of things were you interested in? What did you want to do? Um, I liked everything. That was my problem. I'd yeah. go and do an ear, nose and throat rotation and I'd, I'd love it. I'd go and do dermatology rotation and I'd love it. I'd go and do um, a GP rotation and I liked it. Yeah. I, so you just liked everything. I liked yeah. everything. That yeah. was my problem. Was, mm. Look, there's a few things I wasn't crash hot on. I knew I didn't want to be a geriatrician. Yeah. Um, funny enough, I do do some geriatric work now um, at nursing homes. But um, yeah, there's very few things that I didn't like. I kind of liked everything. Yeah. Um, I wasn't totally enthralled about anesthetics. I didn't find it overly stimulating. But there wasn't, for example, one thing that you were kind of going towards. And, yeah. Not at all. Fair enough. I, okay. I, didn't, I didn't look at it and go, oh my God, if, if, if I don't become a cardiothoracic, my life is over. Yeah, yeah. No. You also mentioned that at the moment you've got a children's health diploma as well. Yeah, child health. Do you find that these um, extra uh, qualifications really help in your day-to-day? Is that something that, if I guess, if you're looking to become a GP, you should be doing these kinds of things? Or is it more out of interest for you, you wanted to do them? After a couple of years, I noticed every GP that I spoke to who was a happy GP yep. um, has, a, has a side interest, has a, has a subspecialty interest, has something they do. You know, they either go, like I do, do some private assisting, or they do kids... Uh, and they'll get out of this room and yeah. go somewhere. You yeah. Know, with a diploma in child health, I mean, you could volunteer with at some uh, pediatric clinics, um, or or you know try and sign up for something at, uh, at the Royal Children's or at the at Monash Children's. Mm-hmm. Um, I did it just to educate myself a little bit because it'd been 12, 13 years since I did a lot of general stuff. Right. So I went back and did it for that. But I also wanted I had an interest in pediatrics. Um, but every, every GP I know does do you know, a certificate in something, a diploma in something, and they often use it to get themselves out of their clinic room right? Uh, and go off and do something one morning a week, one afternoon. One so it adds a variety. You don't want to be in one room, you know, 40 hours or 50 hours a, a, a week and, and never leaving the room. Yeah. And see consult enough. after consult. You need to get up and about. 
Speaking of which, can you tell us what your typical week involves? Yeah, I um, as, as you said at the beginning, I work at two different clinics. Um, I work at um, a clinic in, in, at Monash University in Barrack, which is now, I believe, becoming Federation Uni. Um, and I do that three days a week. Yeah. Um, one of those days I do a half day because I, um, I do some surgical private assisting at uh, Knox and at St. John of God and at um, Jesse Mack. Yep. And sort of alternates through that. Um, and then on Wednesday, I work here at Parkmore and then on Monday, I work here at Parkmore. And on a Wednesday, I'll, I'll, once a month, I'll, I'll have the Wednesday morning off and I'll do private assisting um, at St. John of God, another private hospital. Yeah. So I sort of spend, if you sort of, because it's once a month there, once, once a fortnight there, once a, uh, a month there, it sort of means that my week is broken up with going to this clinic, going to the other clinic and going to private assisting. Yeah. So I'm never feeling like, oh God, I'm, I'm walking into the same building, in the same room, in the same office every day. Yeah. And I know a lot of GPs that do that these days. Unless you own your own practice. Which is different, yeah. Which is different. And the money's different. You, um, yeah, the money's different. Yeah. As well. You're not a contractor. Yeah, it's a small business. It is. Yeah. It is. With all the perks and all the... Um, Pitfalls. Yeah. <laughs> come with that. Absolutely. How did you get the job of uh, private assisting? Is that something that all GPs can kind of get? All GPs or is it... can, and you can put your hand up. Most of us um, will put our hands up because we'll know someone who's a surgeon right. who's, and, and just give them a call or you just call the surgical um, uh, rooms and just say, I do um, surgical assisting. I have this experience and I, I did two surgical rotations or five surgical rotations or in my case, several years of obstetrics. Yeah. And I've got some surgical experience. So if you guys need a surgical assistant, particularly after hours on weekends or a regular assistant, and that's what I prefer, a regular assistant, once a week, once a month, once a fortnight, and I just quarantine that morning from my consulting and go off and do some private assisting. Right, so it's it's partly about, I guess, having connections and knowing the people and putting yourself out there. Yeah. And for you, it was a special case because you had had so much surgical yeah. training. But is it... Uh, it's something anybody, anybody anyone who's can finished do. medical yeah. school... If you train yourself up a little bit and you've got some competency in, in, surgi- in a surgical environment, um, and you you know that people like working with you because they very quickly after you do one or two lists with them, if they just don't didn't enjoy having you as the assistant, you won't get a call back. Yeah, yeah. So it's a bit like for an actor. Yeah, yeah. You, won't, you won't get a call back. So yeah. You'll work that out, and you'll you'll work out what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's it, you're right. It's a combination of uh, having some some skills in that area and be knowing some people. Knowing some people. And if you don't know anyone, just approaching um, uh, surgical private consulting suites where yeah. you know where there's two or three surgeons working out of one set of rooms and saying, "Hey, here's my name. Here's my number." I mean, if you're referring to surgeons, then that that might be even the start and of a, a lot, contact. Yeah, and a lot of GPs do it that way as well. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked a lot about all the great things about being a GP um, in terms of the variety, in terms of the lifestyle and everything. Yeah. What is the biggest um, downside or what aspect of GP do you struggle with the most? Um, I think people's... I think not, not knowing what's going to come through the door is often exciting, but sometimes frustrating because what comes through the door sometimes is completely inappropriate. Now, what I mean by that is that either the patient's expectations for what they think they can get out of a consult is just wrong. Um, they're coming seeking drugs or they're coming for you to write some letter that you know just isn't appropriate or they're coming for you to sign off on a disabled parking permit that you know they don't really need. Yeah. And they have these expectations. And so that's frustrating when you've got to say no to people who just look at you and go, What's it to you? Just sign the paper, you know? Why are you being such a hard nose about this? So that's frustrating. That's annoying. Um, the drug seeking was annoying to begin with, but I've learned 
to deal with that and now sometimes I just it's almost like playing a, a little game or having a little dance with them they, you know what they want they kind of half know that you know <laughs> they know you know yeah, yeah and you just sort of dance around it a bit and then nine times out of ten it's, it's a pleasant ending where they go oh, well I tried and they leave yeah um, how do you deal with difficult patients because I guess GP never is get prob- upset with them never get upset there's no point in getting upset with someone no point in telling somebody off no point in getting angry never raise your voice um, you don't fight fire with fire yep. um, you make sure you always look after your safety but um, you you need to be you need to be measured you need to be professional and you need to often sometimes be very polite overly polite in, in saying look I'm really sorry that you had some expectations this is what you wanted I can't deliver on that I understand you're frustrated I'm sorry yeah um, I can't help you, you know? yeah. and mostly it's okay I've, I've yet to be attacked or um, you know, had anything thrown at me I've had a few angry words as somebody stormed out the door because they didn't get what they wanted mostly it's been okay yeah If there's any doctors you'd like us to interview, or if there's any questions you'd like asked, please shoot us a message. We listen and respond to every single message that comes through. In the coming years, so I guess there's a lot of um, talk about GP funding changes and all these funding schemes and whatnot. How do you see GP changing in the next five to 10 years? And how does that impact your work as a GP or people coming into GP? I think it's... It's affecting every specialty. Yes, so of course. So we know that there's, at the moment, there's about 30-odd plus thousand GPs, registered GPs in Australia, and there's a, about 34 or 36 registered specialists. Yeah. Uh, for the first time, the specialists outnumber the GPs in many decades. And that's because the number of training positions in surgical training, everything, has expanded. So they're producing a lot more obstetricians, a lot more um, surgeons, etc. at the end point. So their jobs are going to change. Their workload's going to change. Their remuneration, because, you know, where they were a surgeon attending to X amount of thousand potential patients in in an area or a zone, that's shrinking. Yep. Same thing for general practice, uh, where a GP would be taking care of an area where there may be a thousand or two thousand or three thousand constituents. That's getting smaller because there's just so many GPs in, in, in the urban environment. So I think it's affecting everybody. It's not just going to be general practice. Yeah. Um, and I don't think we're going to. I don't think general practice will be the one that notices it the most. Um, Government funding is changing, that's true. It may get better, it doesn't always get worse. Mm-hmm. Um, the freeze is off for the MBS funding, but whether that's going to be anything significant and whether it's going to mean a big increase in anything is yet to be seen, and I doubt it. Um, how we are viewed, I think, needs to change. It's Yeah, that, um, it's very important. Well, that, I'm your specialist in life campaign. I'm, I'm not a big fan. Yeah. Um, because I think it just, it really didn't tell the general public what a GP does. Even yeah. the title GP, general practitioner, we seem to have lost practitioner. We've, we've lost the title of physician or surgeon. Um, you know, primary, fi- primary physician, uh, family physician. There are so many other titles that are used elsewhere. In elsewhere. The like in America, they in use America, family physician. Family physician in America. Primary care physician has been used in some areas. Um, so we might need to look at changing that because it's how we're perceived by the public and what we can do yeah. and what we can offer. That's kind of the most important thing. Do you think that people at the moment see as more of like a productized service, like they're going to the GP, like you say, to get like a letter and then that's it? Some people do. Yeah. There are some people, you, you will see a complete contrasting extremes. Yeah. Where somebody will trust me more than they trust their specialist or anybody else that they're going off to see and they'll, they'll come back to me and go, the specialist wants me to do this, what do you think? Yeah. As if I have to rubber stamp it. Yeah. Um, oh, they want to start me on this medication, you think that's all right? Or that he really wants me to do this surgery, what do you think? Yeah. 
they, the, the trust is just amazing and the, the respect is, is something that I think a lot of specialists aren't completely aware of. Yeah. Um, and then there's the other side. You're quite right where people come in and go, look, I just need you to give me a referral. I want to go see a real doctor. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to see a surgeon. I want to see, you know, uh, it's, 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 there's a big contrast between the there two is. groups. There are far more people who trust what you have to say. But all it takes, if you see one out of five that is going to be negative and demeaning of what your position really is, that one out of five is enough to ruin your day sometimes. Yeah, it's a bit draining of your energies. Uh, yeah, yeah, they come and go, I just need you to write a referral to Dr. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I say, well, what am I supposed to write? Dear Dr. Blah, 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 here's Mrs. Brown. Here's a referral. <laughs> yeah. Please take care of her. I need to know something about who you are, why you are. And I said, I know nothing. You're new to the clinic. You just want a referral. I need, it's a communication between me and that other doctor. Yeah. Um, for my own professional um, pride in what I do, I can't just sit there and say, please see Mrs. Brown and, and manage. Yeah. That's, I don't do those referrals. And most GPs won't either. So, yeah. yeah uh, it only takes one of those people to act like that to really get under your skin and, and ruin your afternoon. Yeah, yeah, of course. Luckily, that's that's not not very often. Uh, earlier, we talked about building relationships with specialists and mm. ref- referrals and whatnot. Yeah. Do they come to you and pitch themselves to you? Totally or? different experience to what you will have seen in hospitals. So in hospitals, yeah. where as a resident or a medical student, you're calling the endocrine registrar the surgical registrar the orthopedic registrar and you're pitching your patient to them and their job is to make your job as difficult as possible because they want to make sure that their unit or they are not completely overwhelmed yep, with referrals yep. so it's the opposite you call up a specialist as a general practitioner and they fall all over themselves to um, be nice to you to accept your referrals there's always an exception but of to course. accept your referrals to um, even educate you if you're barking up the wrong tree. Um, it's a totally different experience. Totally yeah. different. Because I guess as a specialist, you're also running a small business. Correct. So and they want the referrals. Yeah. And they want, to, they want to you to have a pleasant experience with them so that every time you have a patient, you think, I've got another thyroid issue here. This nodule doesn't look right. And I'm like, oh, I know. I'm going to go and see a referral to Dr. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. They were so great with me last time. So you have a lot of leverage as a GP when you're... Absolutely. Yeah. And do they specifically come to you, like come to your offices and talk to you? Or? Some of them do. Yep. Some of them come and introduce themselves. They want to come and talk, particularly when you've got practices of more than four or five GPs. They want to come and meet the GPs. They'll come yep. and do a talk. They'll introduce themselves. They'll leave cards. They'll tell you what, it, what their interests are, what they do. Um, they do. They, they pitch themselves at you. And look, when I was coming towards the end of my OBGYN training... Other consultants were saying, this is what you've got to do. You're just going to drive around to 10, 20, 30 clinics in your area and just introduce yourself, take them out to coffee, buy them dinner, do whatever you've got to do, but leave a really big, big impression. Just like what a drug company would do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm the person you want to refer your patient to because I'm a good guy. Yeah. And I, I take care of my patients and I do a good job by any patient that you're going to refer to me. Yeah. That's the sort of message that you want to, you, that they'll want to sell you. We get that now. And they don't, great, look, they don't have to sit to dinner and uh, buy us coffees, but they'll come and they'll, they'll bring, a, bring a feed and they'll give a nice talk. And yeah, it's, it's very pleasant. Right. Happens on a regular basis. And speaking of like businesses and small businesses, do you have any plans to make your own clinic or is that... I guess that would interfere with work-life balance a little bit as well. Yeah, it depends if I can recruit my wife to be part of that business. Yeah, yeah. Not. she was a business manager. She'd make the perfect uh, practice manager. So, yeah. Uh, and she's even doing a diploma in practice management. So right. that's a possibility. That's yeah. Like, that's something we've been toying with. Yeah. And is that something that comes later in your life as a GP or is that you, or you can do I it immediately? Re- well, it depends on, your, on who you are and how you function. If you're comfortable... Um, working completely independently and being the boss of yourself. Yeah. Um, you can do it as soon as you want. You've also got to have a, a little bit of a head for business, numbers, management. Yes. You know, yes. Because you've got to run everything from the, the paper towels, making sure they're stocked. I mean, you, 
you're, you're a business owner. You're yeah. running the whole shebang. So, yeah, it's, you've and got to have a head for that. If you are running a business and it's your own business, obviously you're going to want to be there a lot of the time. Yeah. Would that So one of the... Uh, uh, that pluses that you've talked down. about yeah. yeah you've talked about going to five different places in the week yeah, and you can't do that yeah you you might be able to run away one afternoon a week or yep. maybe two sessions a week yeah but you still got to be there for at least four or five sessions per week so you still have some flexibility don't get me wrong it's not like you're going to be handcuffed to that business yeah because you're usually going to come go into that business and have hopefully you won't be a sole practitioner you'll have one or two people working with you but um, if you're a sole practitioner, you you will be handcuffed to the business. Business, there's nobody else to cover you but yourself. Yeah, yeah, so very interesting. Sole practice, solo practice is not something that's very common these days in external practice. Yes, yeah. rare as hint Yeah, um, we've talked a little bit about your interests outside of medicine. Can you kind of list them for us again and tell us how you kind of fit them into your life? Martial arts would would be one of them. So uh, two nights a week, I go off and uh, I do martial arts. Um, I do that with my family, my kids, my wife. We all we all uh, belong to the same club, and we all, you know, the family that trains together stays together. <laughs> yeah. um, I have a German Shepherd. Uh, love my German Shepherd. Had German Shepherds all my life, so that's a big feature in my my day to day living as well. Um, scuba diving, back into that. So that would be a weekend thing. It's not an every weekend thing. Yeah, so it happens probably once a month to once every six weeks. Uh, I'll go off and do a Saturday of diving. Which is more than it was happening five oh, it years ha- ago. Was not happening at <laughs> yeah. all? Yeah, yeah. Because I can't. Yeah, you just the whole day is dedicated to that, from eight a.m. till you know six p.m. and then you just crash that evening. So yeah, um, it's very very different. Um, and then just family stuff. So art galleries, movies, um, shows, all that sort of stuff that I can now do on a regular basis, almost every week. Yeah. Um, that I wasn't doing. Hmm. It just wasn't happening. And how many hours are you working a week, would you say? And is it quite, um, is work, it the I same work, every week? Yeah, pretty much. I work about 40 consult hours, roughly. About 40, 40, yep. 40 to 45 consult hours a week. Yep. Um, and then on top of that, I'll do another between three and six, of, uh, three and a half to seven hours of private assisting. Right, yeah. So one um, to two lists. Yeah, yep. one to two lists. It sort of averages out. Yeah. Yeah. And that's constant. Pretty constant. Yeah. And so you've mentioned that you can put your hands up for extra work. Okay. Is that extra work readily available for you? Well, I put my hand up for the nighttime doctor, the National Home Doctor Service. Oh, um, right. I yeah. Just do one evening a week if I want. I haven't done that for a couple of months now. I took a break. Um, but that was some extra money. And um, yeah, you just work from 6 p.m. to midnight. Yeah. I just leave the clinic here, jump in my car, and go and do a um, go and do a session. Is or that somewhere, or are you just at home, or you do it out of your car? Oh, right. So it's home doctor visits. It's you going. It's it's the way the GPs used to work. Right. Fifty years ago, go to people's homes and send them. In their so you're kind of in your car for that six-hour period and traveling from house to house. From house to house, and is it quite busy? Very. Very busy. Very busy. It's an area which I don't think will last very long. It's being abused a lot in the, in its NBS numbers, and there's there's a lot of um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, um, it's a hot topic. Hot topic. <laughs> yeah, controversial. A, I'm trying not to be too controversial about what I say, but it's, <laughs> it, it, it's I don't I think that area is going to change. That that yeah. is an area that is going to change. Yeah. One way or another, it's going to change. I don't know how. Yeah, uh, I think there's a lot of interested parties wanting to, to go in all sorts of directions, but that aspect of medicine for GPs, I think, will change. There'll, there'll always be after-hours work for GPs. Um, I even do some locum work, and we got a call today, um, to do some locum work at Casey Emergency, so I can do some locum work there. So there's all sorts of different opportunities you can put your hand up for. Yeah, and the last question I had is, what advice would you give um, to really junior doctors or you know final year medical students for I guess life or if you want to answer a different one what's the worst advice you've ever gotten the worst advice I've ever gotten um, is that as long as you work really hard everything else will fall into place <laughs> yeah. um, and that very commonly dished out yeah and that's true for studies and achieving degrees and diplomas and certificates and that's absolutely true. That's not true for your personal life. 
the harder you work, the more time you spend away from your family, your, your marriage, your relationships, uh, the more it tends to suffer. Yeah. So the one bit of advice I would, I would say to people, and it, it varies from person to person, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain what I mean. There are some people who want to work 60 hours a week, their spouse wants them working 60 hours a week. They are very happy to have their spouse never around and they thrive on constantly working from yeah. dusk till dawn. They get, they, they get off on it. They, they love it. Yeah. That's their personality. Yeah. You've just got to work out what your personality is, what gets you charged up, what you like about life and what you need in your life. And if, if it's to work constantly and have nothing but work, great. Pick a career where that's what you're going to do all the time. But if you're looking for a bit of work-life balance, really think long and hard about the specialty or the, the college that you're approaching about what the work actually is as a consultant. Yeah. What do they do? What flexibility is there for them to be slightly different? What do they do? That's, that's, the, that's the advice I would give. You know, work out what you want, who you are, yeah. Think about who you might be in 10 years' time yeah. when you've got kids and you've got yes, yes. a wife or a husband. And, you know, what were your lifelong ambitions for family, for being a, a mum or a dad? Yeah. What did you perceive was going to be the most important characteristics of that? And also what you wanted out of your career as a doctor. Did you want to be an academic? Did you want to be a proceduralist? Did you want to be, you know, work that out? Yeah. Fantastic. That's really good advice. Well, we really appreciate the time you're taking us to talk to us. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Shashin. My pleasure. Have a nice day. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to keep in touch with us through social media. Our handle is at the med collab. That's T-H-E-M-E-D-C-O-L-L-A-B on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our podcast for our weekly release. All right, guys, see you next week.